All right. While everybody's finding their seats, a couple of announcements. First of all, uh, Dean Bible Ministries needs some proofreaders for the um, for the transcripts. So, if you are interested in being a proofreader for the transcripts, please contact uh, <clears throat> either Barb Apple or Bryce Birch, or you can go to deanbibleministries.org slash about us, go to the about us tab, and there's a contact form there. Also, the um, <clears throat> we have itineraries for the Greece and the Israel tour up on the website. Is the Egypt tour there? It is Egypt tour also. Okay, so that's on the on the website, so you can find out information um, about those those trips. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, time of spiritual preparation as we uh, refocus and uh Get prepared to study the Word, to think about God's priorities and God's revel- revelation, and understanding what it means to be tr- have our minds uh, renewed, renovated, uh, transformed by uh, God's Word, knowing that we walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, that walk by the Spirit is is uh, is broken, and we have to recover through confession of sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to put our focus and attention on that which counts for eternity coming to understand better who you are, what you have revealed to us, understanding the framework of Scripture that we have before us, that we can come to to better understand your plans and your purposes in human history, understanding some of the, the distinctives in each dispensation. And even though the Old Testament is not directly related are written to the church-age believers. There is so much that is there that is important for us to understand. It has tremendous significance for us in many uh, ways that it affects the way we should think about the world around us. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might uh, be able to concentrate, focus, think through things, that our minds might be refreshed and encouraged as we come to talk about uh, your grace, your provision, and how you're working in history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in our previous two lessons, our previous lesson, we covered two chapters. We covered chapter 8 and chapter 9 because the content of those chapters didn't involve a lot of uh, in-depth analysis. Chapter 8 really focused us on 
a summary of the victories that God gave David. So the focus was continued to be how God blessed David as the kingdom of Israel expanded and gave him victory over the enemies. And then chapter chapter 9 focused on God's how <clears throat> David exhibited God's grace to the son of of Jonathan and what is what it comes through we'll talk about this a little more but what comes through in chapters 8 and chapters 9 is and is really tied with the Davidic covenant in chapter uh chapter 7 by the word chesed uh, we find its last two significant uses there's one right at the end of the book but in terms of uh, uh Theologically significant uses. Uh, the last two uh, come up right at the beginning of the chapter. We'll hopefully get to tonight, and that is in chapter ten, as David talks, and that sort of brings to an end this section dealing with with how God exhibited His grace to David, His faithful, loyal love, and then how David exhibited God's grace in turn to others. And then we're going to see just a radical shift that takes place as we get into uh, into chapter 10. So what I want to do tonight is a, an overview, but I want us to think through more of a macro look at, at what's been going on in the narrative of the Old Testament. We'll go back even as far as the book of Judges and just sort of work our way forward just thinking conceptually through uh, through what has been been going on, this all sets the stage, as I've said in the title, for David's great sin in chapter eleven. Chapter ten becomes the break. We'll get to that in a little bit. Explain that a little more. Chapter ten starts the new section. So that's one place, one reason this is a good place to think conceptually, go back and review uh, what what we've covered. Once we get make this shift, starting in chapter uh, chapter ten, <clears throat> things are not very very positive uh, for David. We go through some really rugged material here. We look at the David as the humble servant of God, who we've seen since he came on the scene in chapter uh, sixteen of First Samuel. That David is a is devoted to God. He's a loyal servant of God. There's hardly anything negative that is said about David. He he trusts God when he gets in jams. He 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 pleads with God as we've studied in in many of the Psalms that were written uh, during that. Uh, that time period, and he has faced rejection. He's faced Saul and all of his attempts to to uh, murder David, and he has demonstrated genuine humility. He is dependent upon God. He's obedient to his word. He doesn't retaliate uh, to Saul. He gets, and twice we saw that he's in these situations where he could take Saul's life, and yet he will not touch uh, the anointed of the Lord, and there's one time when he cuts off the hem, uh, just a little bit of the robe, so he can show Saul how close <coughs> Saul came to death. That that David had his life in his hands, and even that, his conscience is so so tender that he feels tremendous guilt that he even did that. 
And so we see all of this. We see God blessing him. We see the expansion of, uh, of the kingdom, and he's trusting God. And we don't see any mention of, uh, really of David's sin nature. I think there's a, a reason uh, for this, that we have the writer writes in such a way as to build David in terms of who his foundational desire is to be. He's focused on the Lord. He's described as a man whose heart is after God. He's humble. He's dependent. He's seeking God. God blesses him first with the kingdom of Judah, and then after seven years adds the other ten tribes and unites the uh, nation of Israel. And that leads to this climactic event in chapter 7 of the Davidic covenant and God's promise to bless him. Now, remember, as I studied that, I, I taught you that, that this, is not, um, this is not written chronologically. It's written thematically, which is often true in Hebrew, Hebrew literature, which is why uh, many of us have trouble when we get into the really big books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even some of the uh, minor prophets. It seems like it jumps around a lot. And it's not following a linear chronological development as much as it's organized, uh, organized th- thematically. So the writer of, of Samuel is just doing an incredible job. This, the, the literature, just looking at the books of Samuel, remember it's one book in, in the Hebrew. Uh, the books, book of Samuel is considered one of the greatest pieces of literature. In fact, I picked up a, a book uh, probably about a year or 18 months ago that related to Samuel, and I didn't get a chance to start uh, looking at it and reading it until the other day. And I'd kind of forgotten I had it on my shelf, and I was looking at for something else, and I saw that. And I went, oh, yeah, I want to look at that. And so I tossed it on my desk and promptly forgot about it, got distracted with other things. And then I was on a conversa- phone conversation with uh, Charlie Clough, and we were talking about... Um, you know the, the the whole issue with the with what I'm beginning to call the foundational uh, truths related to what we think of as uh, perhaps in the past have called establishment truth. In the Psalms, we said, "If the foundations crumble, how will the righteous endure?" What are those foundations? And so that's really the foundational truth that's exemplified in the in the divine in- institutions and so we were talking about those things in government and a lot of different biblical principles related to politics and he said you know i've got this book that i have that's on the politi- the the, the uh, <clears throat> politics in samuel i said really i've got one like that and i told him the title cuz it was sitting right in front of me on my desk he said yeah that's the one i'm trying to get to that to read it and i thought there aren't too many times in my life when I've actually gotten a book ahead of Charlie. Usually he's the one who's telling me, you know, something he's read that I need to, I want to go read. So I thought, well, maybe I'm learning something over these years and, and <laughs> catching on to a few things. But, uh, so I was reading that and it's written by a couple of, of, uh, Jewish legal scholars, both of whom teach in New York at, I believe one of them teaches at NYU. I'm not sure where the other one teaches. The one who teaches NYU also teaches at the Hebrew University. Both are full professors at two schools. And in that book, which is called Power in the Book of Samuel, 
the introduction, the second sentence is, it is no exaggeration to say that the author of Samuel produced what is still the best book ever written in the Hebrew language. That's a pretty strong statement. And it is, uh, they go on to develop it and they <clears throat> say a lot of things that echo what I have taught in the past, echo things that Charlie has taught in the past, and <clears throat> yet there's something missing. And of course, what's missing is because these are not saved uh, people and they don't have a good biblical theology because it's incomplete, not relying upon the New Testament, but they come out with some tremendous uh, observations uh, within the text. And it's interesting that just within the last two or three weeks, for different reasons, I'm reading through uh, two or three different books and some articles that are all dealing with this whole theme of politics and power in the Old Testament and tracing it from Genesis uh, through Kings. And it's just fascinating how these Jewish scholars have, and it's not just Jewish scholars, also at this same time from reading their bibliographies that there's a vast number of of books that have been published in the last 20 years. Last time I did a deep dive in Samuel and dealt with some of these themes was in the late 80s. But the number of books have been published since 2000 that have been dealing with this. There are two or three books that I just wish I had the time to, to look at that all deal with the impact of Samuel on the foundational political thinking in Western civilization as well as on the thinking of the founding fathers in, in, in America and on the thinking that is exemplified in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And they all recognize how political Samuel is, that this is a major theme. We'll come back and talk about that uh, in a minute. But this is part of what's happening in the way the writer has just brilliantly structured this because there's something that's even greater that we've that we've talked about in the past when we've looked at at what God is doing in Judges and in Samuel. And I just want you to think back with me. What happens after the Jews come out of out of Egypt? First of all, what's going on in Egypt? In Egypt, politically, they are slaves. They're owned by the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is an incarnation of one of the Egyptian gods. And so they are under an absolute totalitarian tyranny because of what happened during the famines under Joseph. Remember, uh, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, uh, gets sold into slavery by his brothers. The Midianite uh, slave traders take him to Egypt and sell him. He becomes a slave of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife gets the hot for, hots for Joseph, but he's not going to fall for her uh, seduction, and so she just accuses him falsely of, uh, of rape, and he gets thrown in prison. And God, of course, is supervising all of this, and God uh, eventually brings Joseph to the attention of the Pharaoh because of the, some dreams that he has had that God is, is uh, th that actually a cupbearer and a uh, baker have had, and Joseph interprets them, and then the Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph interprets it, has to do with the seven good years and then seven bad years into famine. And as a result of that seven years of famine, the people in, ended up 
to, in order to survive and to get money to buy food, they sold all of their land to Pharaoh. So what do we call that today? When a government owns the means of production, that's socialism. And it's just, just pure tyranny. And so that's what you have. It always ends up enslaving people, whether they're the, actually slaves like the, like the Jews were, or they're the, the rest, the Egyptians were virtual slaves as well because everything was owned by, by the Pharaoh. So God comes in and it, <clears throat> through Moses releases his people from slavery. They go to, uh, Mount Sinai, and there they are given the Mosaic Covenant, which is a constitution. It's the constitution for uh, for for Israel, for their new country. So they have a people, they're going to be taken to a land, and now they have a governing document. In that document, it stipulates that the form of government is going to be a theocracy, where God is the king, and they are the subjects of of the king. And it provides for for freedom and liberty, it provides for private ownership of production, private ownership of of land, uh, private ownership of goods. It is foundational. It's it, anyone who has really done any kind of serious study on the history and development of political thought in in British thought ends up saying that the foundation is always back in the Hebrew scriptures. It's in Exodus, it's in, to some degrees, Leviticus, mostly Deuteronomy, uh, some in, and, and a lot in Samuel, especially 1 Samuel uh, chapter, chapter 8. And so uh, this, God has to take them through a learning process. And that's what's interesting is why do we go through this? And that's because as God is teaching something for the ages, plus God is teaching Israel that they have to obey obey him and obey the law. And so as they go into the land and they conquer the land and they spread out, we have uh, one good generation. The next generation is kind of, well, iffy. And then they begin to slide into uh, into slavery to their sin. If you remember, if you haven't ever listened to my series on Judges, I encourage you to do that. The more I study this, the more I think I'm going to need to go back and reteach it. It's not on video. I think it needs to be taught again in light of where we've come, because when I taught it the last time, that was 20 years ago. And so maybe in the next two or three years, we'll have to go back to Judges. But what happens uh, during that period is at the very beginning of the period of Judges, you have a generation that is obedient to God, a generation that has for the most part obeyed God in conquering and destroying, annihilating the Canaanite population. But then they begin to compromise. And rather than annihilating every man, woman, and child and uh, everything, then, then they begin to compromise. And now they're living with their pagan neighbors and they begin to compromise and they enter into a, a a slavery to sin, which is what paganism always is. It's a slavery to the sin nature. And as a result of that slavery to the sin nature, they begin to implode culturally. They begin to implode um, economically. God brings them into effect the second and third and fourth levels of 
divine discipline that are laid out in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And so as a result of their disobedience, they're going to come under military defeat and military conquest from their neighbors. And so then they finally, after they go back into bondage to some degree to this uh, economic and military oppression, then they cry out to God to deliver them, and God raises up a judge. The first judge is Othniel. Not a lot is said about Othniel, but nothing negative is said about Othniel. And he is Caleb's son-in-law. That's the first judge. The last judge in the book of, of Judges is Samuel, Samson. And nothing good is said of Samson. So you start off with a judge about whom nothing bad is said, everything good is said, and the people are still close enough to, to remember the victories under Joshua that when they turn back to God, there's a hot, greater level of obedience and they have a memory of, of the Torah and they are applying the word. But as they go from generation to generation, they go through this constant cycle of disobedience and then God's divine discipline, and then they cry out for a deliverer. And this takes anywhere from one to two generations between deliverers. And so you go from uh, from the first deliverer, Othniel, then you come to uh, the, the next de- deliverer, who is uh, Ehud. Remember, Ehud's the left-handed guy, and I titled that message, When Lefty Killed Fatty in the Outhouse. Everybody ought to remember that, good catchy title. And then you get to Deborah and Barak. Barak's the general. Deborah's a a prophetess and a judge because the men are all effeminate and weak. And when God tells Barak that he needs to go against the Canaanites, he goes, well, I'll go if if she'll go with me. And he's weak. And that's designed to be that way. The male is supposed to be the leader. He's weak, and it's showing how paganism is causing gender confusion. It is causing a distortion of of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And as a result of that, what what always goes along with that, once we get confused on gender identification, what goes along with this is an increase in uh, abuse, physical and emotional abuse between the sexes because they don't know who they are anymore. So there's this this unhappy, latent, deep soul unhappiness and confusion uh, that occurs. And so by the time you you trace what happens to women as you go through this increasing paganization through the period of the judges, then they become seen more and more as just uh, second-class citizens uh, sex objects, you get down to where you get to that, to, to Samuel. He's just a terrible womanizer. He is, uh, he has very little respect shown for his own mother. And he just looks at the, and he looks at these Philistine women and he is constantly chasing them, all of which is in violation of his Nazarite vow and in violation of the, of the Mosaic law. And then you get to those weird appendices at the end of the book of Judges where you have the um, the episode with the uh, Levitical priest and the episode with the uh, with his concubine 
and his concubine is, um, he, he goes to uh, Gibeon, which is, uh, Gibeah rather, which is where Saul is from. This is a couple of generations before Saul. And he's there, and, and he, they're just surrounded by, by homosexuals who are attacking. The scene is, so, is very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 17 and what happens with Lot and his daughters and his family in, uh, in Sodom uh, and, and Gomorrah. And, in fact, the language, you look at the Hebrew words that are used in uh, that episode in Judges, and they're a lot of the same vocabulary, same words. It's an intentional device used by the author to make sure that you as a reader are going to connect the dots between what what is happening there and what is happening in Genesis chapter 17. And this is, again, the deterioration of the culture. And so by the time you get to the end where nothing good is said about, about Samson, what you've seen is is a the development of a culture that has overemphasized the importance and the authority of the individual. So that twice in Judges we're told there was no king in Israel, uh, no authority, no constitution in, in effect. There's no, there, there's no higher law than each individual. So there's no, there's no king because they've rejected God as the theocratic king, and there's no king in Israel, and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Every person is their ultimate authority for their life, and so everything falls apart. And frankly, that is a criticism of where libertarianism takes you. It is an emphasis, so emphasizes the freedom of the individual that it leads to a complete collapse. And why doesn't that work? God is telling us something, that that degree of emphasis on on the on radical individualism and the radical freedom of the individual is always going to fail. Why? Because every individual is a sinner. Every individual has failed because we're corrupted by sin. And you can't look to the people to be the source of stability and peace and happiness and even wisdom because they're all fallen, corrupt sinners. And so where this takes us then is into the first part of 1 Samuel. And we get into the first part of 1 Samuel, and we see how even the priesthood is so degraded and deboshed in in Eli and his two sons. Eli is pictured as this this fat, corpulent old man, and he's got two sons who are... uh, working the the women as they come to the tabernacle and seeking sexual favors from the women before they can go in to worship at the, at the tabernacle and it's just a degrading system and and the message is that paganism degrades everybody it destroys everybody and under paganism you cannot have women who are women and men who are men because they, it's distorted because because of sin and it always leads to just a cultural collapse, which is where they are. And so the Israelite people come together and in second or first Samuel chapter eight, they come to Samuel and they say, You need to make us a king. Now they're wrong in what they're doing because as God reminds Samuel, because Samuel gets real mad at him, he's God tells him now the situation here is not that they're rejecting you, but they're ultimately rejecting me as as the king, as the ruler. Uh, but we're going to give them a king. 
So God has, they've learned the lesson because they know that they don't have security. Part of the function of a nation is to provide security for its people. Now, we usually talk about that. We talk about it in terms of, of defeating foreign enemies, and we think about it in terms of controlling criminality within the nation. So they provide security to enemies on the outside, enemies on the inside. But it goes deeper than that. It, it goes to fundamental economics because for a nation to be prosperous, there has to be security in the money. There has to be security so that you can travel, you can trade, you can go from point A to point B. You're not going to be attacked as you're taking your your goods to market. You are going to be able to produce your goods, store your goods, goods unlike in the period of the Judges, which we see in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon. And you see uh, the Midianites sweeping down during harvest every year, and they're scooping up everything, and they're leaving just enough grain for the people to barely survive till the next harvest. And so it goes like this year after year. So the failure of the, of the people to protect themselves is related, first of all, to a spiritual decision, and secondly, it's going to impact their economics. Now, the point, one point of that for today is that you have a segment of, of so-called conservatives, a segment of independence politically in this country who think that you can disassociate economics from morality. In other words, what they're saying is we're fiscal conservatives, but this idea of social conservatism, we want to uh, pander to the homosexuals, we want to pander to uh, various perverts, we want to pander to... um, all these different areas of social life as if it can be separated from uh, from economics. But in Scripture, they go together. You see that God promises Israel that if they're disobedient spiritually, if they're immoral, if they're unethical, if they are worshiping idols, then God is going to uh, bring famine. He's going to withhold the rain. Uh, so cl- they had climate change. Think about the climate change they had during the time of Elijah, where it didn't rain for over three years. And it impacted, you know, they had no crops, everybody's going hungry, and it's not going to rain until Elijah gives the word. It has absolutely nothing to do with meteorological cycles. It has everything to do with the spiritual condition, uh, spiritual condition of the people. So when the people come to... Um, when the people come to Samuel and they want to have a king like the other nations, now God has finished his experiment with libertarianism. He's finished his experiment with pure democracy, and it's led to anarchy. It's led to immorality. It has led to a complete breakdown of the culture where there's no security. There's no military security. There's no economic security. Israel is in a state of cultural and uh, national collapse, and there's there's no leadership whatsoever. In fact, they've had a massive civil war which almost wiped out all of the tribe of Benjamin. So now they're going to get a new king, and that new king is who? It is a man who comes from Gibeah, where that horrible sin occurred, where the and the Levitical priest, after there's this gang rape of his concubine, and she's found dead, he cuts up her body 
and sends body parts to the 12 tribes to call them. He's basically saying, look how horrible this action has been by these Benjamites in Gibeah. Uh, we need to pull the troops together, and we need to wipe these these uh, evil people out. And so they come back, and they have this big civil war. A couple of generations goes by, and we now see Saul, the least of all the families and clans in uh, in Benjamin. And Saul is going to be chosen by God because he looks like a king. He is a head taller than anybody else. He, he If you were going to pick him, pick somebody to be a king, he looked the part. If you were going to go to, to a casting agent in Hollywood, they would pick Saul right off the bat. But Saul, though he is a believer, he is, he's got no foundation in the word. He is just still has that narcissistic self-absorption of the period of the judges. He wants to do uh, what's right in his own eyes. And so ultimately he's going to fail. He's going to disobey God. He's not going to slaughter all of the Amalekites as God told him to do. He's going to make up some some silly superficial excuse for why he didn't kill everybody, but it was just a self-serving excuse. And God says that, that your sin of rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. It's demonism because rebellion against authority is Satan's original sin. And so you're just following in the devil's footstep, and so that's why he identifies it as as witchcraft. And so he tells Samuel that we're going to go with uh, another king. Now, God has planned all this because Saul is demonstrating the evil that occurs. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God said, if you elevate somebody to a position of a king, here's what's going to happen. They're eventually going to overtax you, and they are going to conscript all of your young men and, and enslave them into the army and into the government. And this is what he's going to show with Saul is how bad that got. And then he's going to bring David on the scene because, and he's going to do something different with David. With David, he's got a man who's after his own heart, a man who is humble, a man who is obedient to God. And so he is going to give people a picture of what the ideal ruler should look like. And David is a type of Christ. And so what we've had pictured from 1 Samuel 15 up until uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is this picture of, of the ideal king. And, of course, that is looking forward to the future Messiah who will be the God-man, perfect without sin, who will rule over the nation. But no human being is perfect. No human being is flawless. No human being can genuinely rule in righteousness and wisdom and justice. And David is going to fail. And that's why we have his failures packed in at the end, because this is going to show that that on the one hand, when you put the power in the people, the people are going to fail because the people are corrupt sinners. You put power in a few people in a government then eventually that is going to fall apart as well. That can't bring in a utopia. This is the problem with the radical left, with the Democrats today, is because they're all utopic. They've denied original sin. They've denied the corruption of every human being, and so they think that they can trust the government to solve all the problems when, as Reagan said, the government is the problem. 
And so this is what our founding fathers understood because they were grounded in Scripture. Whether they were actually regenerate believers or not is not the issue. They came out of a culture that was saturated with the Bible, and so they understood those uh, those particular principles. And so what happens is that that God is now uh, directing the writer of Samuel to point out the flaws in David because he shifts from being humble and being gracious to being self-serving to being uh, tyrannical to abusing his position and his power uh, sexually over Bathsheba and then when she becomes uh, pregnant he is going to use his power to murder those who would expose his his criminality and his and his sin and so he becomes a picture of what happens when sin takes over in a governing power and governing authority. But unlike Saul, when David is confronted with his sin, David is going to respond in humility and he will repent of his sin. But nevertheless, there are consequences to his sin that will work their way out in the remainder uh, a remainder of the book. So what we see here is a a picture for us of, of what God is teaching in terms of power, how power corrupts because power comes from the power lust, uh, the, the lust of the sin nature, and all of this gets, gets portrayed here. So um, what I want to do here, we've done a lot of this already. I'll do a little bit more. Is I want to re- review the basic flow and structure of Second Samuel. We've done uh, mostly through First Samuel and we'll just look at Second Samuel, what's going on here. The second thing I want to do is look at the uh, summary of the coming 15 chapters, from cha- starting in chapter 10 through chapter 24, and we'll see that the text is communicating to us at several different levels. And so we need to look at those different levels as we go through the uh, as we go through the text, and then the third thing we'll look at is what if we get there in the next uh, 25 minutes or so to see <clears throat> um, what is going on here in Second Samuel 10. Second Samuel 10 must be understood in the context of Second Samuel 11. Second Samuel 11, which is uh, that when we have the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, begins with the statement, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants uh, with him and all Israel and that destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. But that you can't understand that unless you understand this this campaign, military campaign uh, with the against the Ammonites that begins in chapter ten. The event of chapter eleven, the background to what's happening with with Bathsheba, is grounded in chapter ten. So that's where we have to make our shift, and we'll do it for some other reasons. But also, <clears throat> in between, as we get into this section. And uh, before we really make that jump into chapter chapter 11, we're going to have to look at the 12 verses in Psalm 60 because Psalm 60, we still see the heart of David 
And we still see his dependence upon God in giving him victory over the Edomites and giving him victory over the Ammonites. So we see how quickly the sin nature takes charge in our lives if we're not walking with the Lord. So the first thing we're going to do is review the basic flow and structure of Second Samuel and think our way through what has happened. Now, let's take us back to the overview when we began the series. There's three basic divisions, and I've changed the breakdown on the verses, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. The first section is from Second Samuel 2 through chapter 9. God blesses David, and he, he, that is David, unites and expands the kingdom. He's initially the king in Hebron for seven years, and then uh, then the twelve or the ten tribes ask him to rule over them as well, and the nation is is united. So we see the growth, development of David's family, of the nation in those uh, eight chapters. Then in the second division, from chapter eleven through chapter twenty, notice I end originally I ended chapter nine at at uh, or the first part in chapter ten. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of scholars. There are a lot of Bible school, schools or people who will uh, break that down at um, at between ten and eleven because eleven is when David sins. But what happens is that that there's a lot of structural reasons for why uh, why why that must. Uh, why it starts in 10. Part of it is because 10 is the background uh, for what happens in 11. And so I didn't change that on this slide. I didn't change that. That should be from 10 to 20. And then the last four chapters, there are six appendices that evidence the greatness of the Davidic covenant. So as we got into this part, we saw that David moved to Hebron in Second Samuel chapter 2. Second Samuel 1 is the death the report of the death of Saul, and, the, and David becomes king. In Second Samuel chapter 2, David moves to Hebron. He's recognized by the tribe of Judah, which is his tribe, and they anoint him king. But the rest of the tribes won't unite behind him, so it's still fractured as a nation because they're not under the authority of God. That has to be the foundation. And then he begins to make overtures to, for example, the people in Jabesh-Gilead. That's uh, on the Transjordan, across the Jordan, up towards the north. And they were allied with Saul. Remember, they're the ones who went to uh, Mount Gilboa and took Saul's headless body and brought it back um, and and buried, buried him. Uh, his head had been taken by the Philistines and had been... Uh, posted on the wall, but they rescued his body and and buried him. And then we see this this um, uh, conspiracy between a uh, Abner, who is the general for for has been the general for Saul, and he tries to make Saul's son Ishbosheth, who's a very weak leader, uh, talk about Fredo. Oh, somebody's keeping up with the news. For those who don't know, that's a reference to the youngest brother in The Godfather, and uh, Rush Limbaugh made it famous because he referred to to uh, Chris Cuomo, who's a, 
correspondent or, or anchor on CNN has been referring to him as Fredo for the last little. He's an ineffectual, weak uh, brother who just can't get anything done. And so uh, that sort of entered into the uh, language, the, ima- uh, the uh, imagery that we use in language. And so that's what Ishbosheth is. He's just the the weak little brother he's not he doesn't have the character or the strength that his older brother Jonathan had and he's basically completely controlled uh by Abner and then we see this personal conflict it's power struggles that are going on here uh between all of these people and this fight and this antagonism and bitterness and revenge uh, going on between Abner and Joab in the middle of 2 Samuel chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we see how God is blessing the house of David. He's having uh, more uh, sons born to him in Hebron, and God is making him, uh, God is making him fruitful. So then we go into the next section after we get out, after 3.5, we come to 3.6, and we see how God unifies the kingdom. Uh, David accepts Abner, but then uh, <clears throat> what's going to happen is there's this uh, duplicity and intrigue, and and uh, Ishbosheth is going to be murdered, and there's all this fighting that goes on behind the scenes and personal vendettas, and finally all of the Israel comes to David and accepts him as a, the, their leader down here in Second Samuel chapter five. And then he has additional children that are born in Jerusalem, and that's all summarized in Second Samuel chapter five, verses thirteen uh, through sixteen. Then we come to the third division in the first section, the first that should be nine chapters. I tried to change those on every slide, but that should be one through nine at the top. And so um, we see. David's victories over the Philistines and described in chapter 5. Then he moves the ark to Jerusalem. Now, where are you going to put the ark? So that raises the question of a permanent structure for the ark, which means a temple. Uh, David, at the same time, is building a palace for himself, and so now he wants to uh, provide a house for the for the Lord and this is what leads to the giving of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. Of course, this happens at the same time that he's fighting all these other battles and all these other things are going on because the beginning of Second Samuel 7, he says, after he had defeated all of his enemies. But when we get into chapter 8, we see that he's still fighting all of these enemies. There's still many, many battles going on. So it's just thematic to bring us to the uh, Davidic covenant and God's promise of an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne to David. And this is sort of the high watermark thematically in the book. And then you could almost look at chapters 8 and 9 as uh, concluding appendices to this first part of, of, of the book where we see the expansion of David's kingdom. We see the emphasis on on God's faithfulness to David and God's faithfulness then to Mephibosheth. And then here is a map of the kingdom at its greatest extent. The green area is the extent of David's kingdom. So this isn't to the full extent of what God promised to Abraham. 
They never fully made all of the land that God promised to Abraham part of Israel. And so you have these other areas up here that are part of, of uh, they, they are vassals who are paying tribute to David and basically under uh, the, his military control, but they are not uh, completely... Uh, completely part of Israel at this particular point. So that gives you the area over here is Gaza and Gezer. This is the Philistine Strip over here. And then down south here, south of the Dead Sea, we have the area for Edom, then the area for the Moabites, and then here is Rabbah, which is modern Amman, and that is the capital of the area for the Ammonites. So you can hear the the cognate in Ammon and Ammon. And so here is Damascus. So this area from here north is Syria. He exerted control over part of that area, but not all of the way to to the north. So then we get into this second part where God is going to discipline David for his sins, and David David reaps, uh, reaps the consequences. Now, the reason I make this break here, and this is important, this is where you get down in, into some granular exegesis, is that I came to realize that when uh, you look at a lot of different commentaries and evangelical books, and a lot of times what happens is is they're looking at what did so-and-so say here, and so so-and-so, who was their teacher or scholar, broke it down between chapter uh, 10 and chapter 11, so that looks good, so I'll do that also. Uh, that's when the sin occurs is in chapter 11, and the, people are doing their own original work in drilling down into uh, into the areas. And so what happens here is that there's an emphasis on the word chesed. And so they, 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 they clump together, which is understandable, Second uh, Samuel 7, that's the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7 through Second Samuel 10. Chapter 10 is, tells about what happens to David's emissaries that he sends to the Ammonites in Rabbah and how they are uh, completely dis- dishonored and discredited and ridiculed by the new king. And so um, uh, Hesed ties those together because uh, their argument is that you have Hesed mentioned uh, six times in those three chapters. It's mentioned one time in chapter 7 in relation to God's kindness to David and giving him the covenant. It's mentioned four times in chapter 9, not at all in 8, but four times in 9 when it talks about David's faithfulness to the covenant with Jonathan. And then it's used twice in 10. Actually, that's a total of seven times. It's used twice in 10, but twice or both in the same verse in chapter 10, verse, verse, verse 2, where David says, I'll show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to to me. So it's not mentioned again until you get down to chapter 15. Then David uses it when he's talking to Ittai the Gittite. He's from Gath. And so he has been loyal to David. He's one of his mighty men, but he's not a, not a Jew. And so he wants to leave with David during the Absalom rebellion. And David says, no, 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 you go on home and you take care of your family. You go back to Jerusalem 
and uh, may God's uh, kindness go with you. So it's used there, and then it's not used again in a positive theological sense until you get to the last chapter of um, of, of Second Samuel. So it, it it's it's weak. You've got seven uses of the term in these in these three chapters. The reason I say that's weak is because when you get into and you can even see this reading in your English Bible. When you start reading in your in your English Bible and you get down to verse two again, then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning the father. And you have this word sent. Well, when you look at the word sent, which is the verb shalach, it's translated sent a lot all the way through here. But what's interesting is this word is used 129 times in First and Second Samuel. That's a lot. But look at the next line. 62 uses are in Second Samuel, and more than a third of them, 23, are in chapters 10 to 12. So we had a total of, of how many uses of chesed? Seven. Here we have 10 uses of shalach in chapters, just chapter 11 alone. And so you have another uh, 11 or 12 in, uh, in uh, chapter 10, that's a lot of uses of that word that it hits you after you reading even in English. You're starting to say, so-and-so sent, sent, sent. You have all of these people sending, but it stops suddenly in Second Samuel 12, 1, when God sends Nathan to confront David with his sin. And that's the last time you see the word for a long time. So it's it's really clear that 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 something is going on in this particular uh, this particular word, so the 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 sending that takes place in chapter ten is is emphasizes this competition between David and Hanun that David is sending to him and then he's sending them back and you see this this power struggle taking place between them, and that sets the stage for the use of sending in chapter eleven where it's emphasizing the the sexual abuse, as it were, David maneuvering to, to get sexual favors from Bathsheba. And so again, you have everything covered with this, this word sending. And by using this certain, this vocabulary over and over again, what that does is it just, it's, to, they didn't have boldface type or italics or underlining like we do. So they would use words like that over and over again in order to uh, bring attention to something, uh, that they were saying. So we get into this, uh, second part of the, the, of the book. God disciplines David for his sins, and David will reap the consequences. So David's unfaithfulness is what's covered. 2 Samuel 10 sets the stage. 2 Samuel 11 is the sin. 2 Samuel 12 is David's David's repentance, but also God's announcement of, of the fourfold discipline. And the fourfold discipline strikes right at the heart of the sin. It strikes at the heart of David's family, the child who is born as a result of the adultery is going to die. Then you're going to have uh, incest between um, 
uh, one of David's sons and his half-sister Tamar, and that just brings shame into the family. Again, it's a sexual sin like the sin with Bathsheba. And then you're going to have Absalom, the uh, brother who uh, cares for his sister Tabar, and he's going to murder uh, his half-brother, and then he is going to eventually rebel against God. So you just have this whole period. It's just dark. This is not good positive stuff, as you see David's family fragment over sin because of his sin. This is the uh, divine discipline that God brings on his family. And then from chapters 13 to 20, which is eight chapters, it's all dealing um, it's all dealing with Absalom's rebellion. And so this is, this is not the kind of material that's going to make everybody go home every night feeling so wonderful and, and blessed by God because it just demonstrating the chaos and corruption that sin brings. And so we see all of these events leading up to Absalom's rebellion and then his rebellion, and then finally the return of David after the death of Absalom. And then we get to the six appendices at the at the end of uh, of, of Second Samuel, and concluding with a judgment that God brings against David because because of his arrogance. So that gives us that overview that I talked about. That's part of our understanding. So we reviewed the basic flow and the structure of Second Samuel, and the second thing is uh, through summarizing these coming fifteen chapters we see that the text is communicating to us at, uh, at several different levels. And so the first level that we see that, that gets developed here is t- the spiritual aspect. David's spiritual life, his spiritual failure and his sin, and then David's recovery. And there's tremendous positive uh, lessons from that. Uh, at a very basic level, David reaches a point where he just uh, gives, totally gives in to his sin nature. Rather than being humble and obedient to God, he becomes complacent. He becomes arrogant. He is satisfied with his power. And he, instead of going to battle as the, as kings do, and up to that point, David has always been on the battlefield, David is going to stay back and enjoy uh, all of his blessings and his comfort while other people are out on the battlefield. And this bad decision is going to put him in a position where he is going to yield to temptation. And so this is deals with his spiritual failure. A lot to learn there about what happens when people are put into positions of authority and what the kind of evil that can come as a result of of people and politicians who are put in those positions uh, for too long as they begin to uh, exercise their authority in in extremely uh, evil ways. And so that's what David is doing. He's using his authority to uh, command uh, Bathsheba, and then he uses his authority to try to cover it up and to order uh, Joab to have her husband killed so that he won't discover uh, the the pregnancy. It, it just goes from, from bad to worse. And then as a result of that, God sends Nathan to confront David uh, with his sin. 
And as a result of that, David is going to write uh, two, maybe three psalms, his confession psalm in Psalm 51. So we'll have to go through that. That will help us understand a lot about confession. Psalm 32, we know, is also written at that same time, very similar, and we learn a lot about confession and the joy of his salvation. In, in chapter, in Psalm 51, David prays to God, do not take the joy of my salvation from me, and his joy of his salvation is restored as he realizes his forgiveness in Psalm 32. And the whole, all of this teaches us that, that no matter how much we fail, how badly we fail, how horrible it might be, that if we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life, and there's forgiveness, and there's cleansing, and just because we fail and commit the worst sins we could possibly think of, God is going to forgive us, and God will uh, will will still be able to use us and restore us. So we'll look at Psalm 51, Psalm 32, maybe Psalm 25. And then when we get to the Absalom Rebellion, he writes Psalm 3 as he's fleeing from Jerusalem, and so we'll look at Psalm 3 there, and also Psalm 63, and then a little later on we'll look at at Psalm, uh, Psalm 30. So a lot is going on there from a from a spiritual uh, from a spiritual perspective but then we also look at it from not just a, the the spiritual uh, perspective but we look at it for, from the perspective of God's plan for salvation and God's plan for Israel because David is the uh, prototype as it were he's the foreshadowing for the messiah so there are positive lessons as david is a type of christ but also because of the davidic covenant and we've covered a lot of that so we won't go uh, retrace all of those steps but there's uh, god's plan for salvation becomes more and more clear through the revelation that's given to david through the psalms that uh, that he writes and alter, and this whole section from chapter 11 to 2 Kings chapter 2 is referred to by, by many scholars as the succession narrative because after the first child with Bathsheba dies, the next child that's born is Solomon. Solomon will be the heir to the throne. So Solomon is always in the background from, from 2 Samuel chapter um chapter 12 or 13 to you get to his ascendancy to the throne in uh, 1 Kings chapter chapter 1. So that is foundational to understanding the flow of God's plan for Israel. And then at a third level, there is, the narrative continues to expand on uh, the good and the bad of political power and political themes. And this develops out of an understanding of the Mosaic Law, the rules for the king that were laid down in Deuteronomy, and how the history of Israel, God, and how in the history of Israel, God is continually demonstrating that all political systems will eventually fail because their leaders are sinners, that the only way we'll ever have a perfect government and a perfect society and a perfect government is when we have a perfect king. When the Lord comes back and He establishes rule in the millennial, uh, in the millennial kingdom, so all through Samuel you have a major subtheme related to, uh, related to politics, and so when we get into Second Samuel ten, which now won't be until next time, there's a focus on the historical military 
uh, conflict that occurs between Israel and the Ammonites. But all of this also plays into and has an impact on the spiritual because it sets the stage for David's temptation and failure. And then uh, ultimately for everything that happens in in the remainder of this this book. So that brings us to the third point, which I'm not getting to tonight, and that is the point of uh, looking at 2 Samuel 10 in relation to what's summarized in, in, that should be 2 Samuel 8, because there you have a summary of these battles, and when you get down to verse 13 in 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14, it talks about a battle with with Abishai, uh, with, uh, Abishai uh, down in the south with Edom, and that's happening as part of the battle that will take place in the second part of chapter uh, chapter ten. So we'll be looking at at those things and the whole setup for the sin of David and Bathsheba when we get into chapter 11. So that's that's our overview. That's why this is here. That's what God is teaching through the example of history, but unfortunately we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think our way through what you did in the Old Testament, this the overview of the period of the judges and the period of Saul and David and what you're trying to teach and exemplify through uh, these different approaches to government and leaders and recognizing that, that we're all sinners and because of sin we'll never have a perfect society, perfect government. Uh, we'll always have serious problems because of sin and selfishness and, and giving uh, free reign to the sin nature. And, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that we're just as prone to sin as David or Saul or anyone in the Old Testament and that we have to keep our eyes focused upon you and to to walk closely with you and constantly confessing sin and reading your word. And as David recognized in the psalm that that we need to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And yet even David failed. So we will fail, maybe not as egregiously as David, but we're thankful for your grace and that we have forgiveness and your mercy so that we can always recover and keep going forward. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.